The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good to see you. Uh, I've been with uh, you for, this is the seventh week now, as he was sharing, and it seems like the time has gone by very, very quickly, and I think that I've worshipped with you and shared with you God's Word in just about every way someone can. Uh, online, uh, uploading videos on the front porch here, and then in person. Uh, so uh, that's about all the new ways I want to try. I think I'm, I'm happy, I'm satisfied with that. Uh, so if you have a unique idea, maybe like help by helicopter or something or airplane, I think I'm good with what we have. So... But I have enjoyed very much being with you, and I want to respect your time and want to respect the Lord's time, so let's look to the Lord's Word. And I, uh, uh, you were given or you were sent earlier this week in the newsletter a handout that you can follow uh, that will guide you through what I'm going to share this morning as we look at this question, what does a Christian do with the Old Testament law? If you don't have that handout, if you don't have your phone where you can go online and look at it, it's okay. All I'm going to do is just raise a few questions, walk you through some passages of Scripture, and then make some very simple applications. So if you have the handout, I would encourage you to look at it. If you don't have the handout, then it's okay. I think you'll be able um, to follow um, along. It's interesting uh, when you think about, as a believer, the great amount of time that we give to studying the Word of God. It's amazing to me. We gather once a week and study the Word of God, most of us. Uh, some of us have a, a daily quiet time where we read the Word of God. But it's, it's interesting because as a believer, you stake your life on this book. You are making decisions um, about your, your ethical life. You're making decisions, some of you, about the job you will pursue, who you will marry, where you will spend eternity. It's amazing. Uh, the great uh, amount of respect uh, and reverence and dependence that believers give toward the Word of God. One of the interesting questions that sometimes arises when it comes to the Word of God is the Old Testament. What does a Christian do with the Old Testament? And as we read the Old Testament, we see that there are laws, there are teachings, there are commands that we don't follow anymore. For example, I doubt that any of you have offered an animal sacrifice this past week to have your sins forgiven. I doubt that's happened. But in the ancient world, uh, shortly before Jesus was crucified, every pious Jew did that. And people still make sacrifices today in, in the world. Uh, Muslims make sacrifices. Buddhists make sacrifices. Uh, animists in Africa make sacrifices. We don't sacrifice today as believers, but there are a lot of people in the world who still make sacrifices in their religion. Another Old Testament command, of course, is that you don't eat pigs, which means you would not eat pork chops or you would not eat bacon. Uh, and so I doubt that many of you restrict yourself uh, from eating these things. I know I don't. I like pork chops. I like bacon. But sometimes when, when a non-Christian encounters Christianity and they read the Old Testament, it seems very strange to them, some of the commands. And so this morning, I want to address the question, what does a Christian do with the Old Testament law? And the reason why I address this question, first of all, I address it from a, an apologetic standpoint. As our culture and as our society becomes more and more post-Christian, you're going to have people look at you as though you are completely out of your mind for following what the Old Testament says. 
you're going to find that people think you are crazy for following uh, this Old Testament, uh, uh, old, the Old Testament law or the Old Testament teachings or even trying to apply it to your life in some way. You're going to have lost people ask you, why don't you refrain from eating pigs? Why don't you offer animal sacrifices? Why don't you worship your God as the ancient Jews did? The ancient Jews worshiped God from Friday night at sunset until Saturday night at sunset. That is the ancient Sabbath. Technically, Christians don't worship God on the Sabbath day. We worship the Lord on the Lord's day. But as you encounter lost people going forward, they're going to ask questions like this. Why do you, why do you follow or why do you not follow some of those Old Testament teachings? And then I think along with the with the apologetics question, there's also what I would call the discipleship question. How do you and I live as faithful disciples following the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we follow just the New Testament? Do we follow just the Gospels? Do we follow anything in the Old Testament? And if we follow anything in the Old Testament, what do we follow and how do we follow it? Uh, it can sometimes be very confusing or uh, for, for a disciple of Jesus Christ because they, they don't know uh, what to follow in the Old Testament, how to be a faithful disciple. And so this question is the question that we'll address today. So it both uh, relates to apologetics, defending the faith, and then I think also to discipleship. So it's a little bit different today. It's a little bit more teachy. It's more like a, a lesson. Cut me some slack. I'm a teacher, okay? So hopefully you go easy on me. Don't, don't run me out. Uh, but it'll be different next week. It'll be more like a sermon. But I just think this is an important question, and I think that we should look at it. Now, as we, as we go forward, before we address this, I, I want to make a few points. Uh, there are a lot of passages that we could look at. There are many passages that we could look at. I have listed maybe five to seven passages. We could look at many more. But I've tried to list the key passages that someone can manage in about 40 minutes or about 45 minutes. If you pressed me and said, Michael, which, which passages would you focus on if you only had just 10 minutes? I would say probably Matthew 5:17, and also Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. And I highlight those, and you can see how I've done that. Second of all, I would say that um, a number of Christians have said, well, why don't you just take the Old Testament and divide it into three sections? Why not just divide it into the moral the civil and the ceremonial. Do away with the latter two and only follow the moral. Moral, civil, and ceremonial. Some Christians have done that. I don't think that we should do that. One of the reasons why is because the ancient Jews did not divide the Old Testament into three different categories. In fact, the earliest Christians did not divide the Old Testament into civil, ceremonial, and moral. In fact, it was, it was only about in the, uh, the 200s when the earliest Christians, AD 200s, uh, by a man named Tertullian, a church father. Uh, he divided the Old Testament in this way, these three categories. But I don't think we should do it because the earliest Christians didn't, and I don't think that we should do it because the ancient Jews didn't do that. And thirdly, I would say any solution or any answer to this question, what does a Christian do with the Old Testament law, must reject any and all ideas that says the Old Testament is not Scripture. Anyone who depreciates the Old Testament or any, any solution that says it's, it's less inspired or less authoritative. If you walk out of here this morning and you hear me saying something like, just take the Old Testament, cut it out, and throw it away. Or the Old Testament uh, is not something that you should concern yourself with. You've completely misunderstood what I've had to say. The Old Testament is inspired scripture. In fact, Paul tells us this 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it is profitable for teaching, for correction, uh, for training in righteousness. Paul is speaking there primarily of the Old Testament scripture when he is speaking of, uh, of the word of God. And so I want us to look at some pas- several passages here, and I want to walk through some of these passages. Some of these we'll just survey very easily, very quickly, and then some of them, those that I've highlighted, we'll look at giving, we'll look at, uh, giving more attention to them. We go back to the, the, one of the earliest passages that, is, that relates the Christian story. Of course, that's Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You know the significance of this passage. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They are with the Lord, and they disobey the Lord. And as a result, sin is introduced into the world. Now, this is, this is a devastating event because a problem is introduced into humanity. Sin is introduced into the world. And God is going to take steps, he must take steps, to solve this sin problem. And then we go forward to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And here we have God appearing to this pagan, a man by the name of Abram, who will later be referred to as Abraham. And God appears to him and he says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed. What is God doing? Well, God is appearing to Abraham to create a people for himself, the Jewish people, so that through the Jewish people, God might bless not only the Jewish people, but all the peoples of the earth who embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah. You see, the blessings that Abraham will extend and offer to all the peoples of the earth will solve their sin problem, that was introduced in Genesis chapter 3, but it will bless them with the salvation that only Jesus Christ has to offer. Listen, if you will, to what is said there. Let's go back to Genesis chapter uh, 12, verse 1. I want to read this passage to you. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, as I said, God is working to resolve, working to correct that sin problem. The sin was, that was introduced in Genesis chapter 3. What we have here in chapter 12 of Genesis is the promise of God. You need to remember that. You need to write that down. God is promising to bless Abram and to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abram. As we move forward, there is this large portion of Scripture, Exodus chapters 19 through 24. We won't read this passage because it's too long this morning. But in Exodus chapter 19, God leads Moses and the people to a mountain called Sinai, Moses goes up on top of the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments, and uh, he brings these commandments down to the people, and he shares with them. And much of what you have throughout chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24 are specific applications of these Ten Commandments. So Ten Commandments and then specific circumstances where they're applied. Not every situation in which they might apply, but many situations. And so the law is given to the people. And Paul will talk much about the law later on. But the law was never given to save people. 
The law was never intended to make people righteous. Now, we have the sin problem introduced in Genesis chapter 3, but it's the promise of God ultimately that's going to deliver people from their sin, that's going to solve the problem, not people keeping the commandments of God, not people living good enough or being righteous enough. You see, the Christian faith teaches that no one is righteous enough to save themselves. The Christian religion teaches alone that Jesus Christ provides salvation. Salvation, eternal life, is only found in him. Righteousness is only found in Jesus Christ. And so we have the introduction of sin. We have God's promise that he will bless all the peoples of the earth. He will bring his salvation through Jesus Christ. And then we have the law, which will serve as a guide for the people. But the law is never intended to save. And then we fast forward to Matthew chapter, seven, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7, 17, I beg your pardon. If you have your handout, I have the scripture there for you. If you don't, it's okay. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus is preaching one of the most well-known sermons of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching to his disciples. There are undoubtedly others there. And Jesus speaks of what he has done in his coming. He speaks of what he has done through his ministry, and he speaks of what he will do through his death and resurrection. He will fulfill the law. Listen to what Matthew records. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what Jesus is saying here is, I have come to bring them to their completion. Through my life, through my teaching, through my death, through my resurrection, I will bring the Old Testament law, the prophets, I will bring them to their fulfillment. Now, this is very significant what Jesus says here. If a teacher were to come in here and say, you know what, I fulfill the Old Testament. It finds its fulfillment in me. It finds its completion in me, in what I teach, in what I do, in my miracles, in my death, and my resurrection. You would say that person's crazy. And yet, Jesus says this very thing. Why? Because it's true, because he's the Messiah and because he does fulfill the Old Testament law. So you see, Jesus was teaching that the Old Testament law pointed to him and to his ministry and to his life. Jesus' life was one of those major events in God's salvation story. The entrance of sin was a major event. God appearing to Abram and, and giving his promise was a major event. God introducing the law was a major event, but the greatest event was Jesus coming, bringing the kingdom of God with him and fulfilling the Old Testament law. We find another passage in the Gospels that supports what Jesus says. It's there on your handout if you have it. If you don't have it, it's okay. But Matthew chapter 11, verse 13. Matthew chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus is preaching. He is talking. And he is speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry. And in Matthew 11, verse 13, Jesus compliments what he has already said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John the Baptist. And that might seem like a rather incidental statement that Jesus is sharing here, but what he's saying is, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke of me. They foretold of me. They proclaimed my coming, but now that John has come, they find their fulfillment in me. You see, Jesus is just complimenting 
in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, what he has said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. The Old Testament law pointed to him. The Old Testament law was like a prophet. And Jesus fulfilled that prophecy in his life, in his miracles, in his death, in his resurrection. So these are incredible statements that Jesus is making. There is no way that you and I can walk away from the Gospels and say, Jesus was just a great teacher, or great Jesus was just a philosopher, or Jesus was just a moral person. Jesus is making extraordinary claims about his significance in relation to the Old Testament law and the lives of God's people and the promise that God gave. Well, the next passage of Scripture that we want to look at and the passage that we want to spend more time on, of course, would be Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. And uh, let's, let's look at this passage of Scripture here. Paul is writing, of course, to the church at Galatia. And let me give you just a little bit of background about what's going on here. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia. He has planted this church in AD 47, AD 48. He shared the simple gospel with them that only by placing one's faith in Jesus and the work of Christ on the cross is one saved. But after Paul came, after Paul left, there were some Judaizers who came and they taught false things. They taught the church at, churches at Galatia that in order to be saved, one had to keep the Old Testament law. One had to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament law just as the ancient Hebrews did. And so if Paul sounds as though he is negative toward the law in Galatians chapter 3, uh, it is because he is combating people who have been teaching that salvation is by keeping the law. And Paul will make it very clear that salvation is not by keeping the law. Listen to what Paul says, Galatians chapter 3, and we'll read 19 through 26. Why then was the law given at all? Paul asked this question. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted through a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? And I'm thinking of the promises that he gave to Abraham. Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life or salvation, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And I'll, I'll just interject here just for a moment. The word justify simply means declared innocent. It's, it's a legal word that was used in the Roman court system. When a person was declared innocent, they were said to be justified. And so he says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be declared innocent by faith in his work. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Now, this is a key passage because Paul is arguing against the Judaizers who said, you must keep the Old Testament just as the ancient Hebrews did. What would that entail? Worshiping God on the Sabbath, maybe Friday evening until Saturday morning. Circumcision. Food regulations. Um, um, observing new moon festivals. Uh, certain days on the Jewish calendar. 
The Judaizers were saying, if you want to be good in the faith, right with God, saved, you must keep these Old Testament regulations as the ancient Hebrews did. The majority of believers throughout the Christian world would not agree with this. There's only one Christian group that I, that, I, that I know of that would actually still keep portions of the Old Testament laws the Hebrews did, and that would be the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Uh, they still keep portions of it. I'm sure there are other believers, but that would not be consistent with what most believers um, have done. So if we take all that Paul says here, and we want to distill it down into some simple principles, what would these principles be? Now, there's a lot that we could say about Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 26, but let me just identify several key principles and then make some comments. What does Paul say? Paul says the law had a specific purpose, to reveal sin as sin. So Paul asked the question in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, why then was the law given? So Paul is asking, what was the purpose of God giving the Old Testament law in Exodus uh, chapters 19 through 24? And basically Paul says the law was given to show what sin is, to reveal what sin is. In that way, no one could ever say, I don't know what God wants. I don't know what God considers moral. I don't know what God expects of me. I don't know what, what pleases the heart of God or what honor, what angers the heart of God. But God gave the Old Testament law because it revealed what sin was. And it revealed positively how believers were to follow him. And he gave that to his people that they might know what transgressions actually were. Second of all, another principle we take away from this is the law was added to a humanity's situation, their enslavement to sin. It was not added to the promise. You see, the law was not given because of the promise needing something more. The promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 12, the promise of salvation through Christ was complete in of itself. But it was the sin problem that was the reason why God gave the law. Thirdly, the law's validity ceased with the coming of Jesus, to whom the promise in Genesis 12, 3 referred. Look back at, at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. You see, God gave the law for a period. It was from the time of Moses until the time of the seed. It was from the time of Moses at Sinai until the time of Jesus Christ. Paul makes this very clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. It was for a period of time to be followed by the Lord's people as it was written. Fourthly, the law was not given to make people righteous. In fact, the law cannot make people righteous. If you look there at chapter 3, verse 21 of Galatians, Paul says, Is the law therefore... Opposed to the promise of God, promises of God, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Now, if you're a Christian, you would say, Michael, I know this. I know that I can't be saved by keeping the Old Testament law or by keeping Scripture. Ultimately, it's what Christ does for me. But I guarantee you, if you go out to Walmart this afternoon, or if you go to work tomorrow and you ask a person, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you this question, why should I let you in my heaven, what would you say? You will get a works answer. I've been good. I've been faithful to my wife. Um, I haven't murdered anyone. You will get an answer that stands in direct contradiction to what Paul says here. In fact, you may even hear some 
believers, some church members, give the wrong answer. Paul says, it is not by your righteousness. It is not by my goodness. It is not by our works that we are saved. It is by what Jesus has done on the cross. It is only through faith in Christ that we are saved. Paul drives this home to the Galatians, and it should be driven home to us as well. Number five, the law pointed man to his need of salvation of faith in Christ. Indeed, the law prevents any man from trying to secure his righteousness before God any other way except through the promise of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 22, at what Paul says in Galatians, chapter 3, verse 22. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ, might be given to those who believe. Again, Paul emphasizes what he has already said. It is through the promise of God, the promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that we're saved, not by keeping of the law. And then listen to what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 24. Paul says that the law was a guardian. He says there in verse 24, So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now, some translations like the New American Standard, I love the New American Standard, uh, but in this case, it uses a word that I would not use. The New American Standard uses a word called tutor, and it conveys the idea that maybe uh, the law was this person sitting beside you, helping you try to understand algebra or trying to educate you in some way. Guardian is the better term. In ancient times, a guardian was often an enslaved person who worked in the home of a very wealthy person. And this guardian did serve as a tutor, did teach the children, but the guardian also corrected their behavior. So the guardian would teach them, the guardian might take them from home to school and back, but the guardian corrected them when they got out of line. It was sort of like a, he was sort of like a babysitter with the authority to discipline, uh, if you can think of it that way. And so what Paul is saying here is, the law was your was, was the people of God's babysitter, was their, their moral disciplinarian to correct them and to show them how God wanted them to live. Now, I want to ask this question, does anybody, did anybody ever have a babysitter? Anybody, ever, I had a babysitter, okay, anybody, we've all, probably most of us have had a babysitter, right? My babysitter is not with me today. Did anybody bring their babysitter with them today? Anybody want to stand up and introduce their babysitter? We have time, right? Okay. Okay, listen to what Paul says about this guardian. Again, in chapter 3, verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. So Paul says this guardian, this babysitter, was for, was for God's people until Jesus came, that we might be justified through him. So in a sense, Paul is saying here we are no longer under this guardian. Again, I'm not saying that we throw the Old Testament law away or that we reject it, but there is a sense in which, as the ancient Hebrews practiced the law, believers are not bound by the law. And then finally, believers are no longer under the law, and this is emphasized in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. Listen to what Paul says. He says in verse 25, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So he said this in chapter 3, verse 24. He says it even more directly in the very next verse. Believers are no longer under the law. Again, he is saying this to people who 
are trying to be justified or trying to be declared innocent by the law, but Paul wants to make it very clear that the law was temporary. It was for the time from Moses unto Christ. Paul makes similar statements uh, in other places in his writings. In Romans 7, 6, he says uh, that uh, Christ's death has released us from the law. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says Christ is the end of the law. So it's not just here in Galatians where Paul speaks about the law in this way. It's elsewhere where he speaks about the temporary nature of the Old Testament law as practiced by the Hebrew people. Well, there are some other passages of scriptures that I I shared with you there. One was the the Hebrews 10, uh, 1 through 8. The other was 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Basically, the Hebrews 10 passage says that Christ fulfills uh, the sacrifice requirement, and sacrifices are no longer needed. The Second Timothy chapter 3 passage speaks of the value of the Old Testament law, the, the, the abiding authority for the Old Testament law for us at this time. But if we want to put all of this together, very simply, what are some principles that you and I would follow as we seek to, to follow uh, the Old Testament law in a way that God wants us to? Well, first of all, I would say, we must see the Old Testament law as inspired scripture. Okay? As Paul says, again, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it is inspired scripture. It is profitable for correction, for, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. So you and I should not ever take the Old Testament law and say, you know what, it, it no longer applies to me. I'm just going to throw it away. Uh, sometimes we have this... Um, at CSU, we, we require students to take both Old Testament survey and New Testament survey, and I always insist they take both of them, right, because they go together. Sometimes you'll hear people say, why do I have to take the Old Testament? Can I just take the New Testament? No, it is Old Testament scripture. It is scripture. It is, it is still valuable uh, for God's people, and so both are important. So I don't want to denigrate the Old Testament in any way. Second of all, I would say that in Jesus' death, in his ministry, in his resurrection, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. He fulfilled their commands. We see this most clearly in Matthew 5, 17, which I shared with you earlier. Jesus, in one sense, brought the Old Testament law to its completion. And so what this means is, is that you and I must interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus' death, through the lens of Jesus' teaching, through the lens of Jesus' resurrection. It is still binding to the extent that we we see what Jesus has to say about it and the other apostles say about it. Lastly, in one sense, the Christian is not under the Old Testament law because it's been fulfilled in Christ. On the other hand, there's a sense in which parts of the Old Testament still apply. How can you and I know when to follow the Old Testament as the ancient Hebrews did, or how can we know when we don't? If you're following the handout here that's all laid out within there, Uh, First of all, an Old Testament command need not be followed if the New Testament does not teach its continuation. So if you have an Old Testament command that says such and such, and and the New Testament clearly says it's not binding on you, it's no longer binding on you. Some of the examples that I give there in the handout, one would be keeping the Sabbath. So the Old Testament Jews were commanded to keep the Sabbath, Exodus chapter 31, verses 14 and 15. People were told to not violate the Sabbath. People were told if someone works on the Sabbath, they're to be stoned. 
But if you go forward and you look at what Paul has to say in, say, Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, one person esteems one day as better, while another esteems all days alike. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. So Paul is not demanding in Romans chapter 14 that believers follow the Sabbath just like believers in the Old Testament. Paul is saying, you observe the day uh, that you believe is the sacred day. Now Christians obviously uh, worship God on Sunday because it's the day in which Jesus was resurrected. But Paul makes very clear in Romans chapter 14 that the Old Testament Sabbath is no longer binding on God's people. Another passage that I gave for you there, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals um, and with, or regard, in regard to a new moon or a Sabbath. And so believers are not bound to keep the Sabbath as people in the Old Testament were. We also have the issue of circumcision, something else that I list there. If you were to go back and look at Genesis chapter 17, another passage that I list, God is speaking to Abraham, and God essentially says, I want you to affirm your covenant with me, and I want your children to know of this covenant with me by circumcising every male child on the eighth day. In fact, uh, Abraham is told if a child, if a male child is not circumcised, he is cut off from the covenant. And so in Genesis chapter 17, the covenant and keeping the covenant through circumcision is, is emphasized strongly. In fact, if you were to look over at Joshua chapter 5, one of the reasons why the Hebrews could not go into the promised land initially was because they were, their children were not circumcised in the wilderness. They had demonstrated such a lack of faith and a lack of respect to God and the covenant that that wilderness generation that went out, they didn't circumcise their male children. And so in Joshua chapter 5, God tells Joshua, no one's going in until they're circumcised. That's how important circumcision was. But then if we move forward and we look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, or Galatians 5 and 6, Paul will say things like, neither circumcision nor uncircumcisions matters. What matters is a new creation. So how can Paul, who knows his Hebrew Bible, he knows his Old Testament, how can he take this command of circumcision and just put it away and speak of the importance of a new creation? Because Paul can do this because he knows that Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law. And then probably the biggest thing, it's not big to us, but it would have been big to people in that time, is the offering of sacrifices for sin. We still have religions today whereby people offer sacrifices for sin. But in ancient times, it was, it was so ingrained in the culture for someone to argue that to not offer sacrifices for sin was necessary, they would have been looked at as strange or atypical or not normal. And yet this is just what is argued in Hebrews chapter 10. Christ is the ultimate and final sacrifice. There is no longer any need for God's people to offer sacrifices because in his death and his resurrection, he served as the final sacrifice for sin. So the Old Testament demanded sacrifice, and yet believers said that sacrifice was no longer necessary. And so how do we know if we follow an Old Testament command? You look at what the New Testament writers do with it. Uh, if they are insisting that believers do it, then we keep it. If they're not insisting that believers keep it, then we don't keep it. Uh, there's, there's more that I could say about this. I think I'm, I'm 
may be running out of time, and so I want to want to be careful not to not to prolong uh, what I'm saying here. But I would emphasize to you that what stands out most here is that Jesus is the center of the answer. He stands at the center of the answer. What does a Christian do with the Old Testament law? Why does a Christian not do certain things that the ancient Jews did if a lost person was to ask you that? How do I live as a disciple of Jesus? So whether you're asking this question yourself, whether a lost person is scratching their head and thinking that you're inconsistent or mocking you, or whether you're just asking, what does it mean to be a disciple? Or you're sitting down with someone and you're trying to disciple a new Christian. Jesus stands at the answer, stands at the center of the answer that we give. Because of who he was and because of what God accomplished through him, we must see the law through Christ and see the law through the life and death of Jesus Christ. He brought it to its fulfillment. He brought it to its completion. There are requirements, yes, but they're no longer binding us because binding on us because of who Jesus was. You know, I I don't know about you, but I, I like to just kind of like observe things when I when I'm driving here and on my way, um, I just always notice there are people on my way here who are always just doing things other than going to worship. Okay, there are people playing golf. I can see people playing golf. I can see people jogging. I can see people riding bikes. I can see people doing all kinds of things, and and those people are. Only God knows the condition of their heart, but, but they're, they're not relying upon the Word of God for the decisions that they make. And they may not be relying upon the Word of God, the Old Testament and New Testament, in regard to their future eternity. You, as a believer, are. And as we progress more and more in this post-Christian culture, in this post-Christian age, you are going to be looked at as very, very strange. Why do you follow this book? Why do you appear to be inconsistent in following certain parts of the book? And the answer should be ultimately that I'm relying upon this book because of the person to whom it speaks of. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has died for me, and the one who, is show, who shows me the way how to live. I don't know where you are in, in your reading of Scripture or your understanding of Jesus, but Christian, I just want to encourage you to look to Christ he was not just a teacher. He was not just a philosopher. He was not just a noble thinker. Jesus was and is the Messiah, the one that we find eternal life in alone. Maybe you're here this morning and you are not a believer. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I've shared so much with you, and maybe some of it is clear. Maybe some of it's confusing. I just want to point you to Jesus, you as well. I just want to point you to what he has done. There's no other figure like Jesus in history there is no other figure like Jesus today who answers all of life's questions, who grants eternal life, who gives meaning to life and eternal life to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful, Lord, this day. Lord, as we tackle this uh, subject, Lord, that sometimes comes up when we're trying to disciple new believers, when we're trying to disciple ourselves. God, when a lost person may think that we're inconsistent. Father, I pray that your people would walk away with a great confidence in your word. But, Lord, a great confidence in Jesus in that he is the Messiah and that he has fulfilled all the requirements of this word. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people to be more like him, to grow in our love and our appreciation for him and for what he has done. Lord, I pray if there is one here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray, Father, that they would seek out an elder or seek out someone today 
uh, to tell them of their need of salvation and that they would respond in faith and repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and...